0: The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch Thank you for listening. If you're like me and you grew up in the '70s, you watched Wonder or Super Friends. That was at the very beginning. That was Wonder Twin Powers activate, and I've noticed they've never made a movie about those two. There's a good reason for that. Um, if you have your Bible with you, I would love for you to open it to, uh, to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have one, there should be one in front of you. Now, the Bible that's in front of you, that's in the chairs in front of you, is a different uh, translation than the one that we read from. But soon and very soon, those are going to be replaced with uh, New Living Translation. So those those texts will, um, those tex- texts will match. Um, if you don't know where Romans is, it's in the uh, New Testament. So it's sort of uh, sort of towards the back in the second half of the book. You find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, um, Acts, and then Romans. Last week we talked about God's mission to seek and save the lost. And this week, as I've been thinking through this message uh, called The World That God Loves, I found myself wrestling with this question: why? Like I understand that God loves you. I understand that God loves me. You've probably heard that before. God loves you. But have you ever ever stopped to ask the question, why does God love me? Why does God love me? And I'll be honest, um, when I started to ponder that question, I just sat at my desk for like 20 minutes, and I was just like, why does God love me? Where, where, where does this idea come from that God loves me, that God loves everyone? What's the, what's the reason behind his love? So, so I thought a little more and read through Scripture and read a few other things. Um, the simple reason that God loves us, or there's three of them. He loves everything he's made. God loves everything he has made. Just like you, when you make something, you love it. He especially loves humanity because we've been made in his image. That's what the first first chapter in Genesis tells us, is that we have been made in God's image. And the third reason that God loves us is because it's who he is. It's his character. He can't not love what he's made. He can't not love us. And he demonstrates this love to everyone in several different ways. You don't have to be a believer, you don't have to be a Christian to be a recipient of certain types of God's love. This is how God demonstrates his love to everyone. First off, he restrains sin. Believe it or not, we are actually prevented from doing all of the wickedness that we would do on the earth. God restrains sin. God also restrains his wrath. He's withholding his judgment on all of mankind because he's patient and he's good, and what he wants to see is mankind repent of their sin and come into a relationship. So he restrains sin and he restrains his wrath. He also gives temporary blessings to each and every person. The verse that I thought about for this particular um, for this idea of God. Uh, giving temporary blessings to all, is that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. You don't have to be a Christian, you don't have to be a Christian farmer to have rain fall on your field. We live in an Ecclesiastes world, and what that means is, is there are certain things that every single one of us receive the benefits of. There are there are certain things that we can all participate in. There's a certain level of happiness and joy that we can experience. And in Ecclesiastes, the author of that book talked about them. He talked about food and wine and working hard and sexuality. He talked about all of these things. And these are, these are gifts from God that every person can participate in. Another way that every person experiences God's love is through the experience of truth. Since all truth is God's truth, when the mathematician says 2 plus 2 equals 4, that's truth. That is experiencing, that is proclaiming a level of truth that's available to any person, whether they're a believer or not. And then the last one are general blessings of the Holy Spirit. And these these blessings comes from an influence through the Holy Spirit, like through, through what we might call our conscience. And for the non-believer, the conscience is, is kind, of the, kind of the last vestige of God's image in us. Guiding all people to know that some things are right and some things are wrong. And that doesn't mean that non-believers always do the right thing because Christians don't always do the right thing. But all people are born with a conscience and that's, and that is the, that's the spirit working within us. And these things, each of them, while they are good, they're, they're not all that God has for us. God has so much more. He has so much more to offer. He doesn't want to just give us gifts. God desires actually to be in relationship with us, and he desires to be in a relationship that's that's out of a covenantal love with each and every one of us. Sometimes these other gifts are recognized for what they are, like when the when the rain falls on the, on the field of the non-believer, sometimes that, that farmer will experience that and come to know who God is through that rain. And when that happens, God's praised and God is worshipped. But other times, these, these good gifts are spurned. And what that means is they reject the giver of these gifts. And I know that the giving of gifts is a love language. There are five love languages, and the giving of gifts is one of those five love languages. But real love comes from a desire for relationship. God is not just giving those things. He desires to be in relationship with us. And these gifts, they only hint at what God truly has to offer. And as I was thinking about this last year when we went through the book of Hebrews, we talked about the different elements of the temple. And in Hebrews, it says that those things are a shadow of the reality to come. They point to something else. And each one of these general gifts also point to God. Some people might call them their common a common grace and their shadows. And in his ridiculously heavy book, Systematic Theology, John Frame has to say this. Examples in the Old Testament are Balaam and King Saul. In the New Testament is the example of Judas Iscariot, Jesus' betrayer, who nevertheless preached the coming of the kingdom, healed the sick, raised the dead, and drove out demons. For it is impossible, this is Hebrews 6, 4-6, For it's impossible in the case of those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and have then fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up in contempt. Sometimes, The blessings of God's common grace look very much like the blessings of salvation itself. But God sees the heart of the non-believer and knows that beneath his surface piety, there is no authentic repentance or faith. What Frame is talking about is the difference between these common graces and the love that God is offering us in relationship and the things that we might receive when we enter into that relationship with him. Because God's basic love, those common graces, they only get us so far. Elsewhere in the Bible, Paul talks about the law as a guardian, which takes someone to school— And drops them off so that they can learn. So the law then, the function of the law or the function of these other common graces is to bring us to a place where we can see who God is. And then we have the ability to accept or reject the giver of that law. We have the ability to accept as grace or reject as grace what God is really offering us. So the question that we then have to ask ourselves is, well, what what do authentic repentance and true faith get us? Like, what's the benefit? If we can go through life and we can get all of these things that I just shared, all the the benefits of a common grace of God, why should I become a Christian? What else is there? Why would anyone want more than those things? And for that, we turn to Romans chapter 8. Follow along with me. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his Son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put the death the needs of your sinful nature, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you do not, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom for death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he's given us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he didn't spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. Here's what what Paul is telling us is available to those who become believers. Not just rain falling on your field if you are a believer or not a believer. Not just the full withholding of God's own wrath. There is so much more available to those who call themselves believers who call out to Christ and are accepted by him. We have so much more available to us. These are some of the things. I made a simple list. No condemnation. You have freedom from the power of sin since we have the ability to follow the Spirit. We have life and peace. We are not obligated to sin. We become a child of God. We are heirs of God's glory If we share in his suffering, we get new bodies. We get help in weakness. We have Holy Spirit prayer assistance. The knowledge that God is working all things together for his good. See, these are things that are not available to non believers. That's what I want you to know right now. If you're you're not a believer in here today, I'm so thankful that you're here because I want you to know that there is more available to you than you could ever imagine in your entire life through Jesus Christ. There is so much more available to you than good food and good drink and good sex. There's so much more available to you. There's no condemnation available to you. You, can, you have been called by him to go to him, to stand with him and receive his glory. No one can be against you. No one. No one can accuse you. No one can condemn you. There is no one and there's no thing that can separate you from God's love. You have overwhelming victory if you are in Christ. If you are not in Christ, you do not have these things. You don't have them. These things are only available to those who have given their lives in authentic repentance and true faith. We talked about Levi and Zacchaeus last week. They demonstrated authentic repentance, they demonstrated true faith, and they immediately then went out and told everyone what had happened. Levi, come and see. Hey, all my sinner friends, you should come and see. Like, I know you think life is pretty awesome right now, but come and see because there's something that's so much more available to you. See, they couldn't keep it to themselves. They wouldn't keep it to themselves. There was no way they could keep it to themselves. They were witnesses. They didn't follow some kind of evangelistic program. They didn't wait for Jesus to walk them through the four spiritual laws or the Romans road because Romans hadn't been written yet. That's not what they did. They simply went out and they were new. They acted new. They said new things. They lived new lives, and they did this in front of everyone. They just lived new lives. In Acts one eight, Jesus says this. Paraphrase: The Holy Spirit's going to show up, and you're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit is going to give you something. It's going to give you a gift. And this gift is not meant to be taken and put on your shelf in your house. This gift is your witness. This gift is the power that will give you the ability to live new lives to people who don't know who I am. And you're going to do this everywhere, you're going to, everywhere you go. You're going to start in Jerusalem. Then you're going to go to Judea and then Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Every place you go, you will tell of God's love through Jesus. That's your role. That's what you're going to do with this gift. That's what you're going to do with this power. We've talked about so much over the last several months about the unity of our body, about the importance of reaching Scotts Bluff and Gearing and Scotts Bluff County and all the different places that we lived in. We've talked so much about engaging our community And then, because it's Faith Promise this month, we talk about the different missions that we support in and around the world in different places like Haiti and South Africa and Myanmar. And I think for some of us, probably for a lot of us, that sounds completely like an impossible task. You can't even wrap your mind around that kind of role. Maybe you have no idea where Myanmar actually is on a map. You couldn't find it if someone offered you $100. You have no idea. It just sounds so impossible. Because the reality of it is, for a lot of us, as big of a mission as God has given us, for a lot of us, we are so caught up in just proclaiming the gospel to our own families. That's, that's our real issue, right? Me, going to Myanmar would be awesome. I would love to do that. I would love to go to Haiti. I would love to go to South Africa. I would love to do that. But you know what? I'm just struggling at home telling my kids about Jesus. I'm struggling as a grandparent. I don't even know how to talk to my, talk to my grandchildren about Jesus. Maybe if you don't have kids or you don't have that kind of family, you're just trying to figure out how to talk to your coworkers about Jesus. You're trying to talk, about, talk to your roommates about who Jesus is. So all of this overseas stuff, man, that just seems really impossible, and it seems overwhelming. And I know that we have parents and grandparents in the room today whose children and grandchildren have no idea who Jesus is. I know that we have parents who are trying to make faith a priority in your homes. And I know that we also have some students in our church and some children in our church whose faith is light years ahead of the faith of their parents and their grandparents. Who has time to be concerned about everything going on in the world when we can't even do this at home? When Jesus told the disciples that they would be going to Samaria and the ends of the earth, those, those were real places. And that must have sounded like an impossible task to them. Because if you look at the beginning of Acts chapter 1, there's like 120 of them. 120 people. There is more than that in this room today but not twice that many. Telling 120 people, we're telling you that, that we're going to change the entire world, and that just sounds impossible. And it's impossible to me on a Sunday morning. So many times, I just feel like this is such an impossible task, such an impossible thing to ask of us. So I think our role is to start in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is starting with ourselves. It starts with us. Jerusalem is us. Jerusalem is me. I have to get right in my relationship with God. I have to start with me. I have to read my Bible, and I have to pray, and I have to get connected in a small group. I have to do all of those things, because that is how God is going to communicate with me. We were talking about this in a staff meeting a couple weeks ago. And I so wish, actually I kind of don't, but I so wish that I had something more to say to you than read your Bible and pray because that sounds so cliche and it sounds so lazy and it sounds so simple and it sounds so dumb. But the older I get, the more I realize that the Sunday school answer, read your Bible and pray, is the right answer. the right answer. We can't stress that enough of the importance of being in Scripture. Authentic repentance and true faith begins with us. And then it continues at home with our families and our friends and our coworkers, those that are closest to us. Last week, Ann and I were talking about this at our house, and Remember the song, Fishers of Men? Shane? No, I'm just joking. We're not going to sing that one today. No fishers of men today. But when you're a fisher of men, or when you're a fisher of fish, you start close to your boat, right? You start with the people that are closest to you in reaching them for the gospel. And here at Westway Christian Church, we don't don't want to just be a multi-generational church. We want to be an intergenerational church. We want to see parents and grandparents making disciples of the people that they are closest in relationship with and closest in community with. And in this fall, you're going to see a number of different things that are going to take place to that end. We want to have different Sunday school and small group options specifically for parents. We want to have different small groups and Sunday school options specifically for grandparents. Uh, And like, how do I reach my children? Because my grandchildren don't know Jesus because my children aren't bringing them up in the church. That is reality. So we we want to work with you. We want to teach you. We want to give you tools so that you can be an intentional Christian grandparent. Because I think for so many of us in the room as grandparents, like our mindset of being a grandparent means my grandkids come to my house and I give them lots of sugar and I wind them up and then I go take them home and I drop them off. Okay, listen. It's not what Christian grandparenting is about. For those of you who are grandparents, and I know I'm spending a lot of time on this and that's on purpose because we have a lot of grandparents in the room. If, if, if the faith has skipped a generation, you have no idea how much of an influence you are in the lives of your families. You have no clue. And we want to work with you and we want to teach you to be able to do those things. And as we make disciples of those that are closest to us, like they're going to make disciples of people that are closest to them, and then they're going to make disciples of people that are closest to them, And they'll tell two friends, and they'll tell two friends, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. And then the gospel will spread from our Jerusalem, from us as individuals, from you as individuals, to your families, and then our schools, and then our workplaces. See, God wasn't just saying, I think this is what, or Jesus wasn't just saying, I think this is what's going to happen when the Spirit comes upon you. I think you're going to go out, and I think you're going to be witnesses, and this is really what I want you to do. No, he's telling them what's going to happen. He's telling them what they're going to do. And last, two years ago, when we read through the book of Acts, the book of Acts started in Jerusalem. And where did it end? Paul in Rome. The end of the known world the end of the earth and acts takes us through that trajectory it shows us exactly how the gospel spread and that's what god desires for us today and this isn't a program the four spiritual laws are fantastic i couldn't tell you what a single one of them was I had to memorize part of our Romans Road when I was in my personal evangelism class. I think I have about three of the verses still memorized in my head. See, we don't need evangelistic tools. Those are good things. And they're good things to know, but we don't need them. What we need to do is we just need to witness. We need to witness to the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We just need to be new. We need to act new. We need to talk new. We need to think new. We need to feel new. We just need to be new. We need to do that around other people. I want to read to you what new looks like. I read this text this morning, wasn't planning on talking about it today, and I just get out of the way of God sometimes. So we, this is 2 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 20. I'm going to skip around so so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be our offering for sin so that we could be made with God, right with God through Christ. Listen to six one. As God's partners, that's you. If you're a believer, that's you. As God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then Ignore it. For God says, At just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, the right time is now. The day of salvation is today. We live, this is how, this is how we witness. We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us and no one will find fault with our ministry. In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. We patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. As a new person, I ask you, when troubles and hardships and calamities come upon your life, do you patiently endure? Or are we like everyone else and we just complain about it? We prove ourselves by our purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, by the Holy Spirit within us and by our sincere love. We faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapons of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us. This is what it means to witness. Whether they slander us or praise us, we are honest, but they call us imposters. We are ignored, even though we are well known. We live close to death, but we are still alive. We've been beaten, but we've not been killed. Our hearts ache, but we always have joy. We are poor, but we give spiritual riches to others. We own nothing. Yet we have everything. This is what it means to witness. This is what it means if we are new, if we received these other gifts because of our repentance and our faith and what Jesus has done for us. This is how we live. This is how we live our lives. This is our witness. When God saw people, he had compassion on them, and he sent us Jesus. When Jesus saw people, he had compassion on them, so he proclaimed the good news. I love what Paul writes in Romans 9. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. See, when Paul sees his people, he's filled with with bitter sorrow and unending grief for them. Listen to what he says next. I would be willing to forever be cursed, cut off from Christ, if it would save them. What would it be like to be so filled with compassion for people who don't know Jesus? That you would be willing to say, I'd give up my salvation if they could know who Jesus was. Now, Paul couldn't do that. But I don't think Paul was just making some hyperbole of a statement. I think Paul sincerely cared for people. I think he was sincerely filled with anguish over their lostness. So what he did with that was he went all over the known world to tell them about Jesus. That's how much Paul cared about this life. And we're living in a world that God loves. And he loved them because he made them. He loved them because they were made in his image. He loved them because it's who he is. And all we have to do, all we have to do is live out the truth and reality of our salvation. That's all we have to do. That's our job. But it's not something we have to do. It's something we get to do. All we get to do is live out the reality and the hope of our salvation. What I would encourage you to do this week is to spend time in Romans chapter 8. I would encourage you to read through it. I would encourage you to pray through it. I would encourage you to write it, like paraphrase it, do your own version of it. And take into account what, what Paul is telling us about what is available to us as believers. We have these truths available to us, but they're only available to those who repent and have true faith. I want to close this by reading Psalm 78, verse 4. We will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. Why would we hide Romans 8 from people? Why would we not tell them about the offer of no condemnation? Why wouldn't we share that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for giving us good gifts. I pray that we would see those gifts, that we would see the reason behind the gift is to is to see you, the giver. For those of us that have repented of our sin and, and demonstrate true faith that are feeling condemned today, God, I pray that they would rest in your word. That you are offering a life out of that for those who don't know who you are who have received all of these good gifts and, and feel condemned and don't want to feel condemned the the answer is you the answer is to come to you god the same spirit that that descended on the apostles in the beginning of acts is also with us today as believers. It's the same spirit. Nothing's changed. Help us to go out and to witness to tell of the work that you have done in our lives. It's in your sons name we pray. Amen.